Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 123. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. I'm so thrilled to have on my show today Tom Kolditz. He's a retired Brigadier General and a titled Professor Emeritus by the U.S. Military Academy. He uh, led the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point for 12 years, and in that role, he was responsible for teaching research and outreach activities in management, leader development, science, psychology, and sociology. He's a high ex- highly experienced global leader. Um, it's been um, more than 26 years in leader roles in four continents, and he's focused on leading both leading both on leading organizations and studying leadership and leadership policy across sectors. He served for two years as a leadership and human resources policy analyst in the Pentagon and a year as a concept developer in the Center for Army Leadership and was the founding director of the West Point Leadership Center and instrumental in the design and formation of the Thayer Leader Development Group and is the managing member of Saxon Castle LLC, a leader development consultancy. He's internationally recognized as an expert in crisis leadership and leadership in extreme context and in the development of programs to inculcate leadership and leader development and everything from project teams to large organizations. His most recent book, In Extremist Leadership, Leading as If Your Life Depended on It, was based on more than 175 interviews taken on the ground in Iraq during combat operation. He's been named as a leadership thought leader by the Leader to Leader Institute and as a top leader development professional by Leadership Excellence. Tom, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Well, thanks so much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. You know, I love your stuff. I love the idea of this um, idea of extremist leadership or leading an extreme Situations. That's where everything comes to the front. But before we dive into that, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became so passionate about talking about leadership. Well, I uh, started down the path of studying and, and learning about leadership uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, I went to graduate school in social psychology right after I was graduated and commissioned from Vanderbilt ROTC. And I uh, started working in jobs in the Army that required me to lead and where I was able to watch other people lead, but I also had this more advanced lens, this this social psychological lens that I got working on my doctorate. And so uh, I decided to stay in the Army because I enjoyed it, but at the same time, I was able to move back and forth between tactical jobs where I was actually leading organizations and being led by other leaders and more cerebral analytical jobs in the Human Resources Director of the Pentagon and the Center for Army Leadership at Leavenworth. So it was this back and forth between thinking and writing about leadership and actually doing it that shaped me over time. Uh, Then when I was at West Point uh, in the uh, Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership, it became apparent that we didn't have any evidence-based uh, leader development principles associated with leading in combat. Uh, there were uh, some uh, bits and pieces of research, but most of it was centered around war stories, you know, storytelling. Right. And uh, so uh, in order for us to really teach uh, 
how to lead in dangerous contexts with any kind of authority, we had to do some research, and that's where my research for the book came in. And so we were able to develop uh, uh, not just our our own research, but we were able to inspire more than 90 books and book chapters and articles about leading in dangerous contexts throughout the leadership, management, and psychology uh, field. So that's really what the early work was about, was getting people interested in what what people need, what followers need when they're in a context where they're afraid. Uh, and that connected not only with certainly the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it also connected very well with the deeply concerning financial crisis that we found ourselves in in 2008. Mm. So that was about, that's kind of the background. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love this idea of um, kind of leading in stark and unforgiving environments and the lessons that you can apply even in everyday situations. I think there's a lot to be gleaned from that or a lot we can learn from that. Talk to us a little bit about, um, about that. I mean, uh, uh, from a pilot's perspective of being a pilot, um, I apply a lot of the lessons I learned flying aircraft into everyday business and life. And I think the thing I miss the most about being in the Marine Corps and being in the military and being in an environment like that was kind of the frankness and and the kind of we don't beat around the bush type mentality. Is that a lesson that we can learn from uh, leading in those extreme situations? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, transparency and the the ability for people to be intellectually honest about yeah. performance and leadership is is just critical. And it's very common in um, in settings where people are deeply afraid because the stakes are so high that no one's willing to tolerate uh, beating around the bush. Uh, on the other hand, and and in addition. Um, here at the Yale School of Management, where I've, I've worked for the last two years, we just moved into a you know, gorgeous new classroom and office building for the school. And the architect, Sir Norman Foster, uh, really designed the building to project transparency. Mm. So it's mostly a glass building. And here at the School of Management, we teach classes in things like feedback and coaching so that our graduates can carry forward that principle of transparency and intellectual honesty in the way they do business and in the way that they lead. How does it, you know, it's so great. I love the the fact of transparency, authenticity. Uh, authenticity seems to be the new authority in leadership. It's I, I don't know why it seems to be new, but it seems like we need to be driving towards that. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about authenticity becoming the new authority in leadership? Well, you know, I think it's not only um, a very important part of leading, but I think it's a great way to lead one's life. Sure. Uh, in a straightforward, authentic fashion. And, you know, one of the one of the most important lessons we learned studying leaders in dangerous contexts is that in those circumstances, trust is really the coin of the realm. Right. Trust is, is what ca- carries you through in circumstances of, you know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, the, the, the classic VUCA 
circumstances. Well, you know, most of our lives have a certain amount of uncertainty and volatility and and ambiguity that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And so whether it's in a family context or whether it's in a in a community context or in the context of our jobs, uh, being able to trust one another is so important. And it just, it doesn't just happen. There has to be some transparency and authenticity in order for trust to be built. How do we, how do we do that? I mean, it seems like an obvious answer to that, but, um, what lessons can we learn from an extreme environment and apply it into developing trust in maybe a more vanilla environment here at home? Well, our our faculty member at West Point that did the most research on trust in dangerous contexts is a a fellow named Pat Sweeney, who's now at Wake Forest. And Pat did a study in Mosul in 2003 uh, where he he talked to people uh, about about trust. Uh, He interviewed hundreds of soldiers, uh, hundreds of leaders, in combat in the 101st Airborne Division in, in and around Mosul. And uh, what what he found was that there were really uh, two things paramount. I mean, he has, a, he has a very elegant model, but really, if you boil it down, there are two things that are paramount. The first is, and most important was competence. And so people have to believe that uh, the person that they're talking to is competent in whatever context uh, there is. But then the second was more of a caring component where the leader was communicating to people that although they might be in dangerous circumstances and might be put at risk, that they're not going to be thrown under the bus. They're not going to be wasted or used. And so in other contexts, carrying that out of the, the in extremist context into, into other uh, places, this notion of leaders being competent but also demonstrating some degree of caring for their people is the equation for trust. That's how it happens. Right. And if you lose either of those things, if people, don't, if people discover that you're not competent or people discover that you are self-invested and not really thinking about their well-being, then, then you won't be trusted. Uh, it, just, it just will not happen. And when you think about those two circumstances, transparency and authenticity is, is key. Right. I mean, people have to see you perform in order to know that you're competent. They have to believe in your uh, caring or your concern for them uh, in order to you know, know that they're not just dealing with a, with a completely self-invested individual that's using people. And we have far too many people like that in business now. Um, and they are not trusted. And so they have to build their influence or their, you know, path to success in some way other than leadership. Yeah. Well, I think that's what what I'm hearing and it's becoming apparent to me, you know, thinking about this is that competence really, and that's why it's so important in kind of an extreme environment. Without it, I mean, that's almost a basis, a foundation, almost a number one trait to have in an extreme situation because without it, then all else is lost. It's almost like a given that you have to be competent in what you're doing. And I think when you're in a non-extreme environment, you can kind of get by longer without it. But some, at some point it seems like it's going to bite you in the butt. 
Absolutely. I've, I've had many companies come to both West Point and I've talked to, to companies at Yale who were trying to increase levels of loyalty and trust in their organization. And, and the organizers immediately turned to social events like playing golf and having wine receptions and, you know, this sort of friendliness behavior. <clears throat> which which works okay as long as everyone's making money, there's no risk, nobody's concerned for the business or for their livelihoods. But as soon as the stakes go higher, as soon as, the, as, as risk increases, a lot of that social capital gets washed away. Right. And there's a laser focus on the leader to make a determination of their competence. Can, they, can this person get us through this, and can we see light at the end of the tunnel? And... Uh, so, you know, I, I, I often advise people um, to make sure that when they're doing their jobs as leaders, when they're making decisions and taking in information and processing uh, uh, their world, to make sure that that's done in a public way. You know, let people into these meetings. Let people see you think through problems and make decisions. Because most leaders are pretty competent. But if, if all the decisions are made behind closed doors, if all the decisions are made under circumstances where people can't see them coming together, well then, how do they know their, their boss is competent? Right. So rolling up sleeves and working side-by-side side with your people so that they can see how good you, know, you are at your job is really critical for a leader. Yeah. You know, one thing that I didn't hear you say, okay, so... Uh, when you look at kind of an extremist leader, a leader in, in an extreme environment, talking about competence and this kind of selfless concern for others and uh, an outward focus, I didn't hear anything about ego. How important is ego uh, to extreme leadership or leadership in general, in your opinion? You know, there's been a lot said about humility and leadership. And I think the intellectual roots of that really come from the power literature, where it's shown that people who have power are sometimes made more effective by not exercising it. Mm. So if, if you really have a, lo a, a lot of power, but you, but you set it aside and you lead in a more influential and, and uh, collaborative way, um, you know, some, sometimes that works better. On the other hand, uh, I, I believe that often uh, you want people on your team who are uh, strong leaders in terms of their, their ego. Not that they're arrogant or prideful, but that they have confidence. Right. You know, that they don't believe for one minute that they can't get the job done. And uh, there's, a, there's a terrific new book that came out about a week ago uh, written by Allison Levine that talks about this notion of ego and talks about uh, why you do want strong personalities on your team. The trick then is for the leader to keep those egos in check, to keep people uh, collaborative and uh, focused on the team as opposed to themselves. So I think, I think a good, a good, what we would call a good strong ego is, is something that you want in leaders. It's something that you want on your team. But, but everyone, the individuals on the team and also the, the leadership, has to make sure that it doesn't tip over into 
overconfidence or cockiness or arrogance. Yeah, stop believing your own press. I, I agree with you that in certain cases that I like what you said too about the, the, the part of the ego part that I like is this kind of unwavering confidence of kind of suspending the belief of how it's going to get done. You just know it's going to get done. That kind of confidence is infectious and I think is, is needed in so many cir- circumstances. Yeah, I think you're right. And if, if the ego is channeled in the right direction, if it's not inwardly focused and it's outwardly focused, I think it's it's a great asset for sure. You know, I just started thinking about this whole day of confidence and you know, yesterday was the, as of this recording, was the five-year anniversary of when uh, Sullenberger landed on the Hudson. And um, obviously he was competent in doing that. And I was having a conversation yesterday with somebody about this, that if you, you know, there's probably a hundred pilots that were just as competent or maybe, you know, um, even better from a technical standpoint and an ability standpoint to fly the plane. It's almost like it's a given, right? If in that type of situation, I expect my captains to be able to competent and to fly the, the planes and make the right decisions. What do you think? How do you think and why do you think that was so successful? Was it, was it strictly competence or do you think there was something more from a leadership perspective on why they were successful that day? Well, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of flying myself and I've been a pilot or a skydiver for more than 30 years, and uh, I, I really think that it just winds up being, you know, professional professional skill. Um, you know, I, I think that, kind of like you said, that we, we, should, ex- we should expect pilots at that level uh, operating in, in the environment that they were to be able to ditch an aircraft. Uh, you know, we should have an expectation of certain levels of competence, and that is really what a profession is built on. Right. Uh, there's a great uh, sociologist named Andrew Abbott that has studied extensively uh, professions and how what you know sort of what professions are, and one of the things that all professions have, whether it's medicine or the military or the law is a notion of expert knowledge, that everyone in a given profession is supposed to know and be able to do certain things. We expect certain things from all physicians. We expect certain things from all military officers. And it's the same thing for pilots. And so, uh, you know, that that certainly was a high watermark uh, for people's confidence in the aviation industry and the pilots that that occupy... Uh, those cockpits uh, that fly thousands and thousands and thousands of of uh, sorties a day, um, but um, you know beyond that, I I don't I don't really read a lot into that. I right. guess. Yeah, I guess what I take what I always find amazing, or, or the part that I like about, it, especially when you watch the sixty minutes interview where he says, you know, what did you feel? He said it was the worst the stomach bottom falling through the floor feeling I've ever had in my life. So he was afraid. And I love, and you could probably speak to this too from being a pilot and being um, skydiving too, is is that it's normal to be afraid, I guess, in those situations. But the idea that the, or the ability to compartmentalize is what is fascinating to me, especially in extreme situations. I always hope that I would do the same thing and you never know until you're tested, I guess. But um, I'm just always curious of where does that that ability to compartmentalize come from? Is it strictly training or is there a character, a leadership character trait that, that performs that? Or is it both? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I would say it's a little bit of both. I, I think that, uh, that for the most part, uh, it's training. 
for the most part, people can learn that. And I've, you know, I've helped train hundreds and hundreds of young skydivers, you know, people new to the, to the, uh, uh, sport. And I've watched them progress from being really frightened in the, by some of the things that happened to them in the early stages of their jumping career to becoming completely calm where their heart rate really doesn't even elevate, you know, when they leave the aircraft. And, um, there's something about going all in mm. that has a calming effect. Right. And this came this came to me when I watched uh, the incredibly high altitude jump that was accomplished. Uh, I don't know, a little more than a year ago, oh, yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the and, and I'm blanking on I forget uh, his name too. Yeah. What, I the individual's know. name. Yeah. But but I watched. Uh, through the through the video that they had provided, I watched him leave that step, and I know exactly what he was thinking at that moment. I, I I feel really that I do. You can be nervous up until the time you're completely committed, mm. but once you step off that aircraft, it's game on. Right, and it's it's there's no more. You know, there's no more listening to that pit in your stomach. There's no more, you know, you just focus on what you're doing right. so that you get the best possible outcome. And it's it's that ability to focus and get the job done that, you know, I write about in my book and that is learned. Yes. Men can learn it. Women can learn it. Children can learn it. Uh, that, that ability for outward focus is a learned behavior and uh, really important to people in crisis. Because if you turn inward and you start, you know, getting in touch with your emotions, that's going to go badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your amygdala is activated. You're, you know, you're in a part of your brain where, you know, fight or flight tends to dominate. But if you focus outward, if you focus on the environment that's trying to kill you or the crisis that's trying to end your business, and you focus on getting the job done, there's a certain serenity that comes with that. Right. There's a certain calm that comes with that. And uh, I think it's really important that leaders can establish that kind of serenity in the face of crisis. And it's also important that they focus their people so that they experience it as well. Oh, I love that. You know, I think it's it's so true. I mean, I think about, you know, the situation where I had an emergency or even when I was a lifeguard and I actually did my first rescue when you're, when you do it, you, you and it, you're not even nervous about it. And you listen or you interview people that have been in those cases. Like I didn't have to even time to think about it really that much once I was committed. It wasn't until afterwards it was all over when the adrenaline comes, kind of settling down where the kind of the, the shakes and the nervousness came in. So yeah, that, that's I I see what you're saying. What do you think about? I'm always interested in talking to former military officers or people who've been in the military um, around this whole idea. You see Simon Sinek talk about it a lot in his book a few years ago, The Start With Why, and like it was, um, you know, he made this discovery about why people do what they do, and it's because of, and when I was reading it and listening to him, it was it seemed all centered around what we called commander's intent, which I'm sure you're familiar with uh, being in the Army and as an officer. Talk to me about the power of intent, because I think that was probably my biggest lesson I learned from being an officer in the Marine Corps about how you got people to do extraordinary things is if you just focused on the intent and left the how up to people. Tell me about your experience and what you feel about intent. Yeah, I just think it's really a very important 
aspect of of leading people because it's how people become empowered. Right. And I, I was interviewed and, and talked about this extensively in the first chapter of a book by uh, Stanford professors Chip and Dan Heath called Made the Stick. But you, you know, when you give people an intent statement, which is much broader than a plan, uh, you know, you're basically giving them the purpose of what you're doing, the methods that you want them to use to accomplish the work, the end state, you know, if you succeed, what's that going to look like? And then the risk, how much risk are you willing to underwrite? So you're giving them purpose, method, end state, and risk. And when you do that, they're empowered to select any course of action that is within that intent limitation. Right. And so it empowers people to take initiative uh, you know, plans go out the window almost the day they're published. Right. I mean, the assumptions they're based on change, the resources available change, but the intent never changes. Right. And so people are able to respond to those um, those changes, be adaptive, be agile, and the reason is you gave them permission to do that mm-hmm. with the intent statement, and you said, as long as you stay within this intent, you're free to take action. The other thing it does is it is it sets up the, the circumstances for people to, to trust their boss because if people are operating within your intent and things go badly, that's your that's your problem as a boss. Right. That's not something that you hold them accountable for and say, Well, you know, you really shouldn't have done that or or, you know, uh, it's you know, I'm gonna hold you accountable for that outcome. When they do something that's within your intent, you own it as a leader. Right. And, uh, and that's just part of the deal. And so it's, it's great for establishing trust. It's great for empowering people to take initiative. Because if all you do is give them a plan, they really don't have permission to take initiative outside that plan without asking you. And if the plan runs off track, then you're stuck. Uh, so it's this bigger idea of intent that keeps people moving, keeps people moving forward yeah. in the absence of guidance. Yeah, I love what you just said. Everywhere I've worked outside of uh, the military, um, everybody gets wrapped around the axle about working the plan, and that drives me crazy. And I don't know, I still haven't cracked the nut necessarily of getting people to understand completely um, the idea of intent, like you just so state as you stated it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think organizations miss they get so wrapped on working a plan. Well, I think uh, partly uh, they are concerned about being held accountable for outcomes that are that are outside the plan. Mm-hmm. I think some people feel that if they do take initiative outside of a plan or or on the fringes of a plan, uh, that then that you know they're they're going to be held accountable for that. Um, and, you know, there are climates in many organizations where people do not feel that they'll be supported if they take initiative and things go badly. And the intent statement just sets the ground rules for everybody. Right. You know, when, when you say, uh, you know, purpose, method, and state risk, and the risk statement says, you know, uh, I, I won't underwrite risk uh, outside of $100,000 of our capital, or I won't. 
I won't underwrite any risk, any physical risk to our employees. Well, that tells people right there, you know, where the line in sand is. Right. And, and inside that, then that, that gives them the opportunity to make decisions. And, and really what you want is to create the conditions in the organization where people are willing to make independent decisions that are in alignment with the organization's goals, the leader's vision and intent. Uh, you can't do that with a plan alone. Right. Oh, I love that. Well, gosh, what's next for you? You're at Yale, and how how was um, how's it going there? Do you see it? Th- uh, I'm always curious because when I give presentations to college age students, I've had a lot of them come up to me and say, "Man, and I've never heard anybody talk to me about leadership in that context." You're right there, smack dab in the middle of the academic world. What is the sense? Is there a hunger for authentic leadership? What are you seeing? There, there really is. I mean, this this is a wonderful place to work. And our biggest strength here, in in my view, are our students. And so consequently, the students are heavily involved in the leadership program in designing and executing um, self-directed learning that helps them. So I set the conditions for them to define leadership mm. in ways that make sense uh aligned with the culture that they've come from, the culture where they're going to go work. Uh, We give them the opportunity to take assessments and to design and distribute their own 360 assessments so that they get feedback on the questions and issues that they really want. And then they create a self-directed leader development plan uh, that they take a full year to execute. And during that year, every one of them has a professional coach, every one of them has a peer coach, and every one of them coaches another peer. And so with this as a core program, an activity that every person at the School of Management goes through, you know, we can really guarantee uh, the people who hire our graduates that they're going to have you know, an advanced set of leadership skills and advanced leader capacity. I mean, and they will be at, obviously, at different levels. We have, everybody has a different degree of talent, and everybody starts at a different place. But on average, I think our graduates are really very well positioned uh, to be leaders in business and society, and that's that's what we're all about. Well, it's exciting. It's refreshing to, you know, with all your experience that you've had at West Point and the leadership, and it's exciting to know that you're right there smack in the middle of it in the, in the Ivy League schools spreading the word about leadership. How can people get in touch with you? How, how can people connect with you and, and find your stuff? Well, it's really easy. They can go to the Yale School of Management website, and uh, my contact information's there, or they can just go to thomas.colditz at yale.edu and drop me a note. Awesome. Well, I'll have links to all this and links to your, your book as well uh, once I get this posted. And, uh, Tom, what a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm so glad that you came here. It's fun talking leadership with you. Well, terrific. I, I appreciate you inviting me, and I've enjoyed talking to you as well. All right, Tom. We'll talk to you. Take care. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. 
He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. <music>